Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Bryce Bongiovanni, your host, and today my guest is Eric Ching. Ching is a professor at Furman University and the author of Authoritarian El Salvador, Politics and the Origins of the Military Regimes, 1880-1940. Ching examines the history of patronage systems and authoritarianism in El Salvador and their relationship to rhetoric of democracy and suffrage during the period leading up to the coup of 1931 and the Peasant Revolt and Repression of 1932. Thanks, Bryce. It's a pleasure to be here with you. All right. Well, to start off with, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this subject? Uh, what in your, your academic career brought you to working on El Salvador? Sure. Um, as you said, I'm a professor here at uh, Furman University, which is here in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, in the upstate of South Carolina, not too far from where you're at right now in, in uh, Macon, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Furman has been a wonderful place to work, and I've really uh, found a home here in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, which is a very nice place to live. But I, I hadn't stepped foot in the South before I came here to interview for this job in 1998. And so this has become kind of an adopted home for me, an adopted uh, professional life. And, and that seems to be a recurrent theme in my life because I also don't have any particular organic connection to El Salvador. Hmm. Um, and so I guess the, the shortest answer to um, how I came to be a Salvadoranist and to uh, devote my professional life to El Salvador would be that it is uh, based in political consciousness raising in the 1980s. Hmm. Um, I was I grew up and was born and raised in the Midwest in a, a particularly, you know, Midwestern waspy environment. So even though my last name sounds uh, Chinese, it's not. It's <laughs> actually um, uh, English. My dad's <laughs> side of the family is English, and my mom's side is Norwegian. And, and Ching comes from a little suburb outside of London called Chingford. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So that anyway. So I, I grew up in a like I say, you know, pretty uh, Midwestern waspy environment. Um, uh, and I, I actually have very uh, powerfully distinct recollection of um, Ronald Reagan's address to the nation in 1984 uh, on Central America, in which he was, you know, sitting in the Oval Office or wherever they give the presidential speeches, and he had this map of Central America up, and and it was all the red wave was coming through Central America. And I, I remember, so I was 16 years old at the time, and I remember very distinctly sitting there and watching that um, uh, speech, you know, and, and being very compelled by it and, and you know, essentially believing what I was hearing and, and thinking that, well, yes, indeed, there's a great concern in this place called Central America, which, you know, is somewhere south of here. Hmm. Um, you know, and so... And I guess my my parents were were uh, opposed to the Vietnam War, so I guess that probably had some some kind of uh, influence on me by osmosis. But it wasn't really until I I went out to um, college uh, in Seattle, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, actually, a little liberal arts school out there, um, uh, 
Pacific Lutheran University. And and there, you know, I, I came into contact with a, a, a couple professors um, and uh, and especially some some fellow students who were very politically active. And uh, the professors in particular took took um, an interest in me and, and something that I'll you know be ever uh, forever grateful for that sort of investment that they of time and that they were willing to put in with me. Um, a history professor by the name of Jack Birmingham and a anthropology professor by the name of Greg Goulden. And um, you know, and it kind of as a consequence of of their influence and the influence of fellow students, so, you know, I, I sort of came to discover that what I had heard back in 1984 was was um, not uh, particularly accurate, and uh, to say the least. And that was kind of the ongoing process by which I became very, very um, committed to trying to figure out what was going on in Central America and what was the an appropriate sort of U.S. policy response. And so even though my initial interest in the subject matter was sort of through a U.S. foreign policy approach, um, you know, I came to realize that what really needed to be done sort of to determine if U.S. policy in this place where I've been born and raised, the United States, was doing the right thing was to look more deeply into the local situation and to find out the, the story there and the history there and the experience there. And that is ultimately what led me to decide to go to graduate school in, in Latin American history. And then of the three or four options I had in terms of acceptances, I, I decided to go down to uh, UC Santa Barbara, uh, in part because the one Salvadoran uh, who had a PhD in history at the time uh, was teaching there at the time, huh. uh, Hector, Hector Lindo Fuentes. And so I, I was sort of interested in... in um, working with him and under him. And he eventually left not too long after I got there to go teach at Fordham, where he is now. And, and he and I have, have co-authored a couple of books together since then. Interesting. And after he left, I was picked up by an Argentinian, by the, an, a, a scholar by the name of David Rock, who very generously um, uh, picked me up and, and shepherded me through the remaining process and, and finished my PhD there. But ultimately, that's how I, I came around to uh, focusing on Central America to, and more specifically studying El Salvador. And, uh, maybe with one quick little anecdote about El Salvador, I, I have another distinct recollection sure. of sitting on the floor of the open stacks of the UCSB library, um, and, you know, speaking to the power of open stacks and the importance that it is in our lives. I remember pulling a book off the shelf at the time, uh, by, called Miguel Marmol by Roque Dalton, um, and, just being completely captivated by this story. Uh, Dalton's a longtime political activist in El Salvador who was assassinated in 1975. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he wrote this uh, testimonial or, or recorded this testimonial by this um, communist activist from the 1930s who survived the 1932 repression and went on to be a ranking figure in the party for many years. But this, this story and this the power of this just uh, really had a, had a impact on me. So all that convergence of forces um, led me to uh, put together a, a proposal, a pre-dissertation proposal to head down to El Salvador in uh, 1993, or, you know, one year after the war was over, mm. and to see what the archives had to offer around some of these um, kind of historic questions here. Right. So in your research in this book, um, you're looking at the period from about 1880 to the 1932 uh, revolt and repression. Mm -hmm. And you're talking 
mostly about the, the systems of the political system that had emerged in uh, El Salvador at that time and how it sort of led up to the authoritarian government that lasted through most of the 20th century. Um, but I was wondering if you could just uh, explain a little, bit, a little bit about El Salvador itself, uh, you know, what the sort of setting is for uh, the events that you're talking about, for the, uh, the kind of this political system that emerges in El Salvador, what, it, <coughs> what kind of geography it's coming out of, what kind of economic situation, and a little bit about what kinds of information then you were able to find from El Salvador that allowed you to write the book. Sure. Um, uh, on the one hand, El Salvador is is a prototypical case study, if if we can put it in terms like that, of, or at least is is representative of of the broader Latin American experience in many ways. But at the same time, it also has a lot of peculiarities that mm-hmm. that make it a very distinct country and sort of set it apart. Um, one one thing that sets it apart is its small size. Um, you know, really the smallest country outside of the Caribbean. Uh, in in Latin America, um, another one is that um, the the how dependent it became on one particular um, crop, in this case coffee, uh, such that by on the eve of the Great Depression, something like ninety percent of El Salvador's export revenues are derived from coffee. Right. So it has a, a very deeply monocrop uh, economy. Um, uh, the other Things that kind of set it apart are that in 1932 there there occurred this um, horrible event, but you know in in response to a, a, a relatively small peasant uprising, or perhaps I should say a, a, a reasonably sized peasant uprising that ultimately sort of attacked about a dozen villages in western El Salvador, the the government at the time and the military regime at the time. Um, just unleashed this wave of terror across the western countryside and ended up murdering, you know, massacring an, un- an untold number of people. You know, we've oftentimes hmm. said it was 30,000, but whether it was many thousands of 10,000 or, or more or whatever, but it, it's probably one of the worst single episodes of state repression by a government in you know, modern Latin American history in terms of that many thousands of people dying within the span of about, you know, 10 days or two weeks' time. Wow. Um, and then uh, from that point thereafter, El Salvador has the dubious distinction of having the sort of longest run of uninterrupted military rule. Hmm. So from 1931, uh, right before that event in 1932, until 1979, and really, to be realistically speaking, I mean, the military had tremendous influence and power up until the end of the Civil War in 92, but but in terms of kind of officially a, a military government in power, you know, it was almost um, so from 31 to 71, almost five decades of uninterrupted rule, and that is in, in, a, in a region of the world that has had a lot of um, uninterrupted military rule, that's the longest. And then finally, you know, the distinct quality is that while many countries in Latin America had uh, brutal civil conflicts in the 1670s or 80s, the the Salvadoran one was was one of the worst, um, in the sense that just in per capita consequences of human life, especially during the first three years of the war, it it 
um, a polit- professor of political science, Terry Lynn Carl, who's been doing some, um, who's been playing an important role in bringing some of the uh, generals to, to trial, some of the army officers to trial. She has a little diagram that demonstrates that, that El Salvador civil war in the first three years in particular may have been the most uh, costly in terms of per capita of human life of all the civil conflicts in Central America. Um, so all of these things sort of make El Salvador a particularly intense and particularly distinct kind of case. Um, it's in many ways like I think the, that should, oh, sorry, the, go ahead. It's in many ways, it's, it seems like the, the similar experience to many other countries in the region, but taken to extremes. Um, or at least, or at least with its own peculiarities. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, and I guess then the, the follow-up question you have is sort of how I came to this particular subject, right? Or how the, the materials that I found allowed me to work on this. Is that, right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, right, when I went down in 93 to the first time and, and went to the archives, it was kind of a, a matter of sort of finding. I knew I, I had an interest in these issues, historically situated, the 1932 uprising and the origin of the military regimes. And indeed, that's, you know, where the title of this particular book comes from. So yeah, so I guess we we could have mentioned earlier that this book, even though it's it's published here in ninety and twenty thirteen, you know, it was my dissertation that I hmm. finished back in nineteen ninety seven, and I got sidetracked by a lot of other stuff in the past sixteen, seventeen years, and so this is it's curious that it's like kind of in the mid stage of my career, but it was you know really a, a project that uh, has been around with me for a long time. And has been un- inter- interrupted by some other projects in between. But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, when I was there in 1993, and I, I, I went into the archives, and um, briefly, not not to draw this out too much, but because um, the, the archives kind of are an interesting part of the story, to the extent that they you know really dictate what's what's possibly done. Right. But <laughs> the archives are housed in in the National Palace Building in, in downtown San Salvador and Central San Salvador. And when I got there in '93, you know they had the earthquake in '86 and. Lots of, you know, large areas of central San Salvador were still, um, well, they, they looked like a war zone. And of course, you know, the war was, had only been over for a year. Mm-hmm. But the National Palace was, was a, was a shell of a building. Um, it was a really, um, <laughs> it was a hard place to work in. Um, and, you know, like there were no windows in it. It's got all this traffic going around outside of it. And there's, there's really one functioning bathroom. And I sometimes have made the joke to people that if, if the, the, the archival staff guard, guarded their bathroom more than they guarded their documents. <laughs> when I went back for the full-time research the following year, you know, it took them about two days before they got kind of tired of me constantly asking for stuff and essentially said, here, just go, go to, go get the documents yourself. You can kind of essentially have unlimited access to the documents. But it took about two months before they let me use their bathroom. So, <laughs> um, Kind of a funny, funny side note there. And that's not meant to say that the archival staff was not, uh, really good and very professional, but it's just sort of a funny commentary on the state of the affairs. Well, their situation but, is but understandable, the ar- yeah. Pardon? Their situation is understandable, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the, ar- the archive itself, I mean, uh, the, another Salvadoran scholar by the name of Aldo Laudia had, had gone down actually while the war was still going on. And he was the first one to get into the archives and he had done a tremendous job of, Working with archival staff and bringing documents in from other archives and this type of stuff and, and getting some stuff in boxes. But I mean, basically the archives was in a state of real, um, it was a mess. And, and you know, when I got there, especially 93, I mean, there were just piles of documents literally in corners, you know, next to open windows and, and, you know, they were getting 
wet and they were totally dusty and they were just you know decaying and all this stuff and and even the the main documents that I ended up being interested in because they had um, all of the stuff relating to political correspondence, which is the archive of the or the the collection of the Ministerio de Gobernación, or the Ministry of Government, or the Ministry of the Interior, however you want to pronounce it. I mean, uh, as I, you know, indicate my introduction there, there, you know, Aldo and the staff had got those, you know, at least by year and into boxes, and so um, there, there were about 500 of these archival boxes and another couple hundreds wow. worth of, of bundles. But you know, this stuff was not organized or cataloged in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you want to go through and do what I was trying to do, which is a fairly comprehensive look at the archive to sort of see what, what this archival repository has to say to you, the only way to do it was just to sit there and go box by box, page by page, and just flip and flip and flip and just, you know, and this was before the age of digital camera. So I was, ended up sitting there with a photocopier and, you know, just like photocopying each of these things as they went along. And, you know, the only way that that was going to be possible was then to, essentially have unlimited access and essentially just to sit there for, you know, a year or more um, and then just, you know, flip through and, and just work your way through it. And so, but ultimately it was the existence of that, you know, Gobernación records, which essentially consists of the correspondence back and forth between the national, departmental, and municipal levels that, you know, forms the backbone of this um, of, of this particular study. And maybe I'll just mention one more thing about archives that, um, uh, that that reflect what what's contained in the study. I, you know, I also went to archives in D.C. and Washington D.C. and I went to uh, some variety of municipal archives. Also, I traveled out from the capital at various times. But I went to D.C. and I went to London. But the really kind of exciting find in terms of you know not not doing historical research is rarely exciting. But um, I did end up going to Moscow um, in '94. Uh, you know, just uh, a few years after the fall of the Soviet Union shortly after they sort of opened up their archives. And I was I was curious as to, well, just what might happen to be here in Moscow, you know, in relationship to the Communist Party of El Salvador in the 30s and, and whatever else. And I really had no idea what I was going to be getting into or if I was going to find anything. But, you know, sure enough, I, I managed to get there and I managed to get, you know, into the archives. And uh, I got... Uh, someone there's a there's a very helpful archivist there. She probably doesn't work there anymore, but she spoke Spanish as well as Russian, so I was able to to communicate in Spanish, and then get these sure enough get these records delivered. And and according to the records log, basically no one else had ever looked at these things. Maybe one Soviet general for whatever hmm. reason has gone back in and looked at these things. But you know, so she kind of pulls these things out, and you flip into it, and you're just so like, well, I wonder what this is, and it's like, you know, you just that moment where that light bulb goes on and that your jaw drops, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is the correspondence between the Salvadoran Communist Party and the and the Comintern, you know, or, or the Bureau of the Caribbean here in New York, and it's like nothing like this exists in El Salvador, and no one's ever seen this before, and I wonder what's in here, and then you know, and then you know, within just minutes, you know, it seemed to me that it was like this is a provides a completely you know revisionist interpretation of what happened in the 1932 uprising. Oh my gosh, that that sort of moment. So that was the other kind of archival story that then, you know, merged in with my time in El Salvador. So we will get to that particular story a little bit later. The thing I want to ask you now is, so in these, in these government correspondence, uh, between the central government in San Salvador and these sort of departmental governments, uh, 
and party politicians, what you find is the records of what you call a system of, of patronage, um, also of clientelism between uh, uh, elites and peasants, but in this case specifically this sort of system of political patronage, networks of bosses and subordinates who are sort of negotiating political power um, in competition with each other across the country from really the uh, the late mid-19th century up through to the 1920s. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about, you know, what what is this this system of patronage and, and what is its, you know, importance to then the history of El Salvador from the late 1920s onwards? Yeah, so, um, you know, basically when I, when I sort of dove into the records, you know, I was just essentially pulling out any, any piece of paper that seemed to relate to politics or elections. Of course, I was particularly interested in any social movements or uprisings or anything like this. What, you know, sort of, you might say, sort of bled out of the archives kind of came before me as I was pulling all this stuff out was just a, a tremendous amount of correspondence relating to elections and uh, p- political activities related to um, the the placement of uh, municipal mayors and departmental governors and and um, and then all the way up to the, the national presidential level. And you know the thing that uh, the things that jumped out at me were were just how tremendously active this e- electoral um, process was, you know, historically, like year after year, time after time, um, just a lot of elections were being held. And while you always have to, of course, read these sources with a, a, a critical eye and a jaundiced eye, right. um, you know, thinking, you know, in the back of my mind, well, these are just, you know, elite-led, you know, shenanigans regarding electoral activities. You know, even even with the most critical interpretive eye, you realize that, that you know, throughout these, you know, many, many decades of time, you know, dating all the way back to, you know, the, the moment that El Salvador became independent. Um, you know, quickly, I should, you know, interlude here that one of the big problems we have in El Salvador in terms of 19th century history is that the, the archive burned down in oh. 1889, taking with it, you know, un, untold, you know, volumes of 19th century and probably colonial correspondence or colonial documentation. So one of the exciting finds that I found, uh, you know, was actually out in a municipal archive in Cincinnati that had uh, the west of El Salvador that had um, obviously survived and not burned down. And they had uh, political activities and electoral activities, uh, records related to that going all the way back to right when El Salvador became independent. So it was those types of things that I was able to go out and find and then look at the, the patterns of uh, of politics and elections, you know, over time and, and sort of see what was going on. Uh, in the process. And so one of the ways I've kind of described this to, to myself and maybe to others on occasion is that this is, you know, an, an, an excavation of the endoskeleton of Salvadoran politics. Because the, the, the nature of the documentation in El Salvador and the nature of the documentation that I was working with in particular, it doesn't allow us to invest or to discover too much about the sort of hopes and dreams of the individuals involved in their peculiar and distinct personalities and or necessarily what they thought, um, per se. We don't have diaries. We don't have a lot of 
hardly any personal correspondence for these people. These types of collections don't exist. Uh, but, you know, we have this vast volume of um, uh, kind of a vapor trail or a paper trail, you might say, of the things they were doing as they were engaging in politics and in particular elections. Right. And so then, you know, what I ended up doing was just you know, kind of systematically going through this year after year and trying to figure out how, how did this thing uh, function? What was the structure of this over time? And so, right, so as you say there, what what I, I eventually sort of concluded or found was, was a tremendously vigorous electoral um, experience going on over the span of, you know, 100 years from, you know, as early as 1840s and 1830s right up into the, you know, 1940s. And then since then, I've looked, you know, at the time period after 1940 and found it to be very continuous to this. But at least within that 100-year span, you know, there were a lot of elections going on. Nobody ever held office without holding an election, even if it was preceded by a coup. And there was a lot of active participation by the broader whole of the population. Um but, as you point out, and as the main sort of argument of the book in regard to how this is going on, these were very um, controlled elections within the context of them taking place within these um, patronage networks. Um, so, I was certainly influenced in my reading of these things by that great book on Brazil by Richard Graham. Uh, the specific title escapes me, Patronage and Power and Patronage so, and yeah. Politics in 19th Century Brazil. There it is on my shelf. I see it right there. Um, you know, but, but showing that these, these, what was, what was in competition were these, these networks of, of patronage and patron client relations. And that what kind of defined El Salvador through the 19th century until the state really began to centralize in the latter part of the 19th century was just the, the decentralized presence of these things, these highly competitive but decentralized um, entities and how people were were different networks were desperately competing for the things they needed to succeed in politics. So that could be people's votes, it could be, you know, physical material, horses and bullets and money and that type of thing and food to either, you know, make war with one another or uh, or whatever else, but to marshal and to mobilize these these precious resources to succeed in the in the realm of politics in one way, shape, or form. One and one so uh, that, one example I thought that uh, was pretty interesting. Just just a, an illustration that you gave that I thought was interesting was uh, um, early on you mentioned one particular election where on the national level the election seems competitive, but then when you looked at the individual departments, um, you found almost unanimous voting by department or by by subdivisions of departments for one candidate yeah, or even or by other. even yeah. even by municipality. Yeah, I think you yeah. might be referring to the 1895 election, That's which I one, use yeah. as a, yeah as a as a metaphor, just because the documentation is so rich for that. So I sort of put that up front and say, okay, here's this really rich example that we have, and I'm going to contend that this is is um, typical of what's going to take place elsewhere. But yeah, on, on that election, you know, two two guys are are running against one another for the vice presidency and. and just happens to be the case, and when the, the the aggregate results, you know, it looks like a really competitive election, and it was. Um, you know, the the voting was pretty close, and, and one guy kind of won by a, a relatively narrow margin. 
but then as soon as you get down into the, the deep part of the of the data, you know, the disaggregate, and you go like township by township, you realize that the voting in almost every one of those townships was was unanimous or near unanimous. And what's also quite interesting is that in some places, like you you, know, you have a particular department, and you take one portion of this department, and you might have you know, 10 out of 14 municipalities will be unanimous for one of the candidates. But then somehow or another, the other candidate has patronage ties, managed to sort of win over or, or form alliances with local political leaders and say the four other municipalities. And so even though they might just be like a, a couple kilometers down the road from these other places, the voting results are exactly 100% unanimous for the other guy. Right. And so, yeah, that type of constant jockeying for um, patronage alliances and the construction of patron-client relations like that. You know, that's my basic contention is that that was, was going on constantly throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, and that ultimately then the military authoritarian state that, that's constructed in El Salvador after 1931 is is an outgrowth of that. And it's it's not, it doesn't break from that pattern, it's just a kind of evolution of that and so that's as we get towards the end of the book. That's that's kind of the claim is this is this argument of continuity and how this experience in the 19th and early 20th century fed into the 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 50 years of military authoritarian rule. Right. But this this raises sort of an interesting question, which you do answer. But it's a it's interesting. You know, the, the thing that pops into my mind when I when I was reading the book was if these these elections are going on. Lots of elections, constant elections, and lots of heartfelt rhetoric about democracy and about about suffrage. And as you point out, these elections are going on, including immediately after coups. There are also lots of coups, lots and lots of coups. So, what is the what is the purpose of having so many of these elections? Because they're not exactly preventing violent overthrow of existing governments in many cases. Um, what, what is sort of their, their function for the political elites that are involved in the patronage systems controlling these elections? What do they do for them? Yeah, I think, well, in, in the most immediate sense, just a very practical sense, right, obviously the point here is, is who's going to be in office and who's going to have the power of office holding to exercise whatever privileges that carries with it, whether it's setting tax policy or making war or whatever else. So obviously, like any election, that has the, the outcome. But I think you're right to pose the question of what's really curious and, and represents another kind of um, particularity that, that I was working on in the book was this, this tremendous paradox between language and um, the practice of elections. So we, we know these elections are not democratic as, as by whatever standard of measure we want to use. But there, there's a lot of them. People are tremendously active and involved. And along with that, you have, um, along with them, a constant and ever-present and almost un... Um, um, well, a constant and ever-present language of, of democracy, of republicanism, of the promotion of, of free suffrage, of the promotion of individual rights, uh, just... Uh, Unyielding in that sense, and so I'm one of the. I don't have it, it's a kind of a Gordian knot that I, I'm not really able to untie, but I, I'm able to document that you've got this, these two things going 
side by side. And so to get back then directly to the question that you asked, it it would certainly seem to be that what you've got here is, you know, this this construction of the the notion of, of the nation state and of national identity and even around ideas of modernity and progress and so on and so forth that you know we we uh, we are democratic we hold elections um, we you know live by the rules that we've set down in the constitution these formal rules but we do so with these very informal practices that on the one hand are are never talked about explicitly in any of the documentation no one ever says like you know, I know we're just saying democracy over here, but what we really mean, of course, is that we're going to go over and steal this election or something like this. But it's just this, it's a maintenance, this consistency with which you've got these informal practices uh, alongside these, these formal practices and this language of democracy alongside this practice of what, you know, I, I call authoritarianism. And, and so it would seem that, you know, the answer to your question is that this is, this is part of what is you know the making of of the the identity of this of this political world that that we have there in El Salvador, and so what I'm trying to sort of suggest, sort of long term down the way, is that to the extent that this functions so consistently over the span of say 100 years and into the military regime, and then I'm able to to document, I think at least that that the military regimes pick this exact same thing up, a language of democratization, uh, even a language eventually of of social reform and of the responsibility of the state to look out for its citizenry alongside these very uh, authoritarian electoral and, and political practices um, that in some way, shape, or form, you know, you're, you're constructing um, uh, a, a culture, a political culture, you're constructing a social arena in which the, the language, the word democracy and everything that associates with it at some level, in people's minds, has to be associated with these other practices over here, in right. some way, shape, or form, and at least in some, somehow, must help us to explain why El Salvador has been, has has had such challenges in, um, in, in creating and implementing a, a, a democracy. Which, you know, briefly, if I was actually go back and say one of the other things that kind of is interesting about El Salvador and sets it apart from sure. many of the other countries in Latin America is that. You know, almost anywhere else, you can find at least a moment where you've got a, a, a call it a reformist government, a democratic government, um, even a, a left-leaning socialist government. Every other country in Latin America basically seems to have had at least some moment where this occurred. And, and in El Salvador, there was a tiny little window of a moment in the you know late 1930s, or excuse me, 1931, 20s, yeah. very late 1920s, but. You know that that's it, and so it, it, the the kind of dominance of these authoritarian political practices is 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 almost unique to El Salvador, and so maybe at some level, this paradox, this dichotomy between this language on the one side and these practices on the other, um, hel- helps us to explain that. One thing that you you mention is a uh, as as part of a part of a reason for this, not the whole explanation by any means, but the one factor that plays into this. A uh, persistent authoritarian system of governance, governance that is sort of wrapped in democracy is the relationship between, uh, the elites and the peasantry in El Salvador and especially between the Ladinos and Indians, which is a kind of a unique relationship 
uh, in El Salvador relative to that same dynamic in some of the neighboring countries. I wonder if you could, could just talk a little bit about, uh, what is, what is sort of the, the relationship in the late 19th century in these political systems between, for one, elites and peasants, and two, particularly how, how the indigenous population is, is sort of relating to this? Sure. One, one of the things that, that it also seems to make El Salvador kind of a curious case study is that when I, I've looked at, at research done on, on other countries, and I think Colombia and Mexico are, are a couple that, that stand out in particular, when you look at the political world of those places in, in the 19th century and in the mid-19th century, you, you find a, a, a moment or an era or a phase where um, the, the the masses, the peasantry, call it what you will, um, the plebeian um, society finds a space to inject itself into the political arena in a pretty autonomous way. And um, I'm thinking here of the work of James Sanders on Colombia and Peter Guardino on, on Mexico. And, um, but you know they 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 document pretty specifically where this this these mass actors sort of give new meaning to the definition of civic republicanism right. and they start to inject that into the system and that generates um, typically a, a response back by uh, elite actors who fear that and believe that they may have been responsible for creating the opening or at least uh, tolerated the opening and, and they're, they're anxious to close that back down. And so they document these moments where then what, whatever opening may have existed gets closed back down. Well, in the case of El Salvador, I mean, and it could be my own limitations, it could be the curious limitations of Salvadoran archival resources, but that, that moment never seems to really exist, at least comparable to that, where you've got this kind of redefinition of civic republicanism and the peasantry stepping in to, to kind of autonomously redefine the meaning of politics and, and civic life. And so something that's curious about El Salvador is that when you look at the formal rules, there, there's never a backtrack on advancing participation in the electoral system. Every constitution that comes along is, is more progressive in terms of granting and permitting access of actors into the political arena. Um, it, it's a constant step forward if you want to put it in those terms, never backward, to the point that by the mid-1880s, you know, if you are uh, an 18-year-old male, regardless of property, regardless of ethnicity, you know, you've got the right to vote and, and participate in the political system. Wow. And so it, it struck me and seemed kind of comparable to this the work on the on the on Peru in the early 20th century by Cecilia Mendez, who talked about how in response to an, an uprising there in the early parts of the 19th century, the, the response by elites, instead of trying to crush that and destroy that and, and stop that, which of course is what they wanted to do, but what they were most interested in was realizing the potential of of active, electorally involved, politically active mass actors, and, right. and they wanted to encourage them into the system control them, use them, whatever, but at least have them present because that's part of this of this notion of making this this nation state and the political structure around it. And so that, you know, in response to your question, seems to be something similar to what was going on in El Salvador. Of course, as I, you know, accept and show, there's plenty of uh, of very class based, material based, hierarchically rooted um 
relationships between elite actors who want to control the system and want to march mass actors and laborers and into the political arena and, and control them. But, you know, there's there's also this this curious dynamic where you've got a, a very seemingly very active mass electoral audience that is is not exactly rebelling against the system, but is participating in it in a not entirely autonomous way, but not either a particularly, you know, controlled or, or manipulated sort of way. And that that's what I think ultimately sort of feeds into um as you say, from the the late 19th century and then into the early 20th century, and ultimately into the the, the 1932 rebellion. One component of that 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 is that you've got these these pockets of, at that time, the early 20, late 19th, early 20th century of, of highly indigenous areas. Right. And so beyond just the the peasant to elite relationship on a non-ethnic level, you get into those areas, and then you've got you know pretty autonomous Indian communities indigenous communities on large tracts of communal land who are then being confronted, who happen to be on land that has incredible value as potential coffee land, um, which is, you know, an old story in Latin America. And now they're beginning to confront the onslaught of the state and the onslaught of Ladino or non-Indian. We almost can't call them elites yet, but, you know, you might right. want to be elites coming into the area and targeting them and their land for um, for uh, transformation into into coffee land. And they are sort of unevenly beginning to participate in the same system of clientelism as Ladinos were of roughly the same sort of situation in terms of class or in terms of their uh, economic role. Um, but they aren't quite at this point, they aren't quite part of the system in the same way. Um, Right, and what the, the, I don't have a you know the, the evidence as to what I'm about to say and what you're referring to is not overwhelming. We don't have a lot of case studies, but the, the couple okay. of case studies that I do have, municipalities in the West and in highly indigenous areas, you know, are pretty revealing. And, and what you're referring to is is when you look at these two towns. Now, Wisalco was one, for instance, a, a well-known indigenous community out in the West, and, and another one. But I'll just focus on Maui Salco. You have a, a overwhelmingly large uh, majority Indian population or indigenous population in that town, something like 90%. And they're, they're very actively involved politically. And when they are confronted with this new and emergent Ladino elite, you know, the, the Ladino elites would, would behave exactly like you expect would expect that they would in the face of an overwhelming majority Indian population. They're patron-client relations with one another, and they're they're trying to co-opt a few of the Indians if they can, but ultimately they're trying to use very controlled elections to make sure that Ladinos are in power. And one of the things that I'm I say that the documents demonstrate is that when the tables are turned and the indigenous folks are participating in the electoral arena against those Ladinos, when they have the overwhelming majority and they're gonna win the election no matter what, they participate in that electoral arena in exactly the same way with unanimous voting, with the same language of democratization, of accusing the other side of, of not being democratic and, and then practicing these non-democratic practices. And if, if the notion is that mass actors are going to be promoting democracy to defend their class interests against elites, in this case ethnically differential elites, that's not how they're acting. 
And so that that's where I sort of make that claim. It's a modest claim, but the evidence, you know, is what leads me to it, is that, you know, these, these mass actors were at least somehow participatory in constructing this long-term pattern of authoritarian rule in El Salvador. As far as, as the pattern of authoritarian rule in El Salvador uh, develops and changes, um, to move a little bit forward in the future, you talk about in the 19-teens, the government of, of two guys, uh, Melendez and Quinones, beginning in 1913, um, which you describe as, as the, the expansion there of the patronage system to the national level, sort of at last. Because of, I guess before you've been dealing with patronage networks, as you call them, that are a kind of jockeying for position between different departments and they're staging coups against each other. And it's, it's in, uh, in the 19 teens, where uh, you get the formation of the uh, of the PND, the Partido uh, Nacional Democrático, uh, that is, as you put it, the national level patronage network. And I wonder if you could just just talk a little bit about that and how it how it formed and and functioned. Yeah, so that that represents the kind of uh, turning point of the the centralization of uh, El Salvador's uh, authoritarian political system, where right prior to this, what you had were, were regional patronage networks, and, and they were constantly in, in conflict with one another, and they were trying to reach into one another's geographic and, and uh, demographic space, you might say, and pluck out, you know, get some of the periphery away away from their their adversaries and create alliances with them and everybody was trying to to create a a, a large enough and powerful enough um, uh, network that they eventually could you know hold office uh, you know sort of in perpetuity you might say but it, it proved to be impossible up up until that point and so what what the Melendez Quinones dynasty as it's called or this this 13-year rule, 14-year rule by this family, 13-year rule by this family represents is, you know, the kind of final consolidation in which finally this one network under these um, two brothers and brother-in-law were able to do was to finally take advantage of the economic growth of coffee and the centralization of the state and the, you know, the kind of nationalization of the military and um, and, and finally hold and consolidate power. And, and that's what they represented. Um and then that, you know, leads us into this next, you know, fascinating moment, which, you know, we'll talk about here, I'm sure, in just a minute, where you've got one of their insiders comes to power next, and for reasons that still remain unclear to me, frankly, but, you know, he engages in, in what can only be described as, as genuine democratic reform and sort of takes this system and begins to turn it on its head. But before we get to that point, um, you know, the one other thing that's, that's interesting about the Melendez-Quinones era is that you, what I say is that you, you don't have regional patronage networks essentially battling for control of the central state like you saw up through the 19th century, but you certainly have a lot of infighting within this one network. Right. And so, you know, you've got, um, players that are deeply enmeshed in, in this state that they've created and inside their political system and sometimes are personal friends, sometimes are either even intermarried by family, but they're jockeying for position inside of this and sometimes, you know, trying to pull support away from, from those particular individuals. And so one of the things that, that Melendez and Kionis had a, had a difficult time with was the relationship with the military. 
and that the military and certain military leaders seem to be loyal to other potentially aspiring political players within the system. And so one of the things that they ended up doing was creating what can only be described as, as a paramilitary organization um, to serve as kind of the the hitmen for for their political regime, and that was called the Red League or the, the Liga Roja. And um, you know, there's a little there's a little bit of a kind of debate amongst the Salvadorans as to what this thing represents, because there there are some who contend that you know the the rank and file of this were of course poor peasants, largely from rural areas. And there's a contention that this Liga Roja represented a kind of early um, autonomy by by mass actors or plebeian actors that that they were taking this this Liga Roja and kind of turning it into their own um, autonomous base for advancing their particular interests, you know, presumably their material and class-based interests. And uh, I'm certainly sympathetic to that possibility happening, but it just seems to me that that all the evidence that I read really points to this as being, um, you know, much more of um, a kind of classic armed wing of a patronage network who was battling against another armed wing. It just happened to be inside the same patronage network and happened to be the national military. (laughs) Uh, or police, and so the Melendez Quinones was trying to, you know, use this. And when they eventually dismantled the Liga Roja, I contend it was not because that they were worried about peasant mass action, but that some of the local elite actors who were in charge of these local Liga Rojas were were actually using them to advance their personal political aspirations back against the Melendez Quinones regime. And so what when in deconstructing this thing they were actually what I say is kind of closing this patronage valve that they had unintentionally opened up. Um but and and that reflects, you know, the kind of broader debate we're having about the meaning of democracy and authoritarianism in El Salvador. So the Liga Roja is just sort of one um relatively small but interesting um window into that debate. Right. Um so Following this this uh this establishment of a national level regime, as as you talk about, after uh, Quinones leaves office, he's replaced by, as you said, an insider who engages in a surprising and rather sudden movement towards reform. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Bosque? Yeah, Pedro Romero Bosque. He was the vice president and the former minister of war, former chief justice of the Supreme Court. Had been, you know, a deep political insider for years and years. Wasn't an overwhelmingly wealthy um, man, um, but you know, certainly had substantial resources. But you know, it was more of like a po- p- career political um, high-level bureaucrat. Um, and yeah, so for a variety of reasons, when it came into the nineteen twenty. Um, Sixth election, 1927, uh, the Melendez Quinones regime, which which would have rather sort of kept it amongst itself and its close family members, for a variety of reasons that we don't have to go into now, had to had to go to a, a quote unquote outsider, but they went to this deep insider, and so they they oversaw the election of of this guy, and sure enough, he won in the standard fashion. You know, it was like a it was a completely unanimous result. Um, and and he became president, and it, almost as soon as he became president, he he began to both talk about 
democracy in, in a way that was strange relative to how it had been in the past, or at least it sounded exactly the same. Democracy meant free suffrage and, and individual rights and, and all this stuff, which had been said many, many times over. But when you got down, when it got down to the point of what he actually sort of meant as to how that was going to look on the, any given day of the election, it was, it was different. And so it was a very fascinating experience to, and there are a lot of records in the 1920s, so that's one advantage we have there. Tremendous amounts of telegrams of correspondence back and forth between the local and national level. But yeah, what you realize very quickly is that, at least according to the documentation, it's like this, this really appears to have been, and this is not to disempower mass actors out there who, who may have deeply wanted democracy. And in fact, Hector Lindo Fuentes might be working on a project that will prove what I'm about to say wrong. And, and, um, hmm. And if so, more power to him. But that at least the the records that I'm seeing there really show that that note that you know this seems to have really been the kind of brainchild of him and a couple of very high ranking ministers around him. And what they began to do was sort of send out these telegram missives out into the where voting actually takes place out in the municipalities that says that th- this is what election day needs to look like. And that then generated these responses back from people who, you know, were essentially the equivalent of people scratching their heads saying, what do you mean by that? (laughs) Because that's not what, you know, this political language that we've used for a very long time looks like on the ground here. So I'm, you know, I'm confused by this and, you know, sort of why are you doing this and, and what is it that you, you know, really want out of this? So it's this kind of wonderful moment from a archival perspective where the where the documentation sort of shows this system. It, it both exposes the way the system was working before and then how uh, the people who were practicing it were, were responding to a sort of new set of rules and, and a changing of the meaning of the language. Um, so I, I found that kind of fascinating. Um, but, you know, why he did this is, is I don't think, the documentation, at least that I saw, really helps us to understand. It's uh, there's there's I could have gone into some broader series of case studies to try to explain that, but it really wasn't the kind of objective I was after. But it was just to show that that indeed there was this moment of of attempted and energetic democratic reform that had, in a four year span, very very mixed results. On the one hand, I show was I think some pretty compelling documentation that not a lot ultimately really changed out there in the municipalities. In most cases, the same people that had been in power for many years out there remained in power, um, but that he did manage ultimately to put in some sort of uh, administrative and bureaucratic structures that allowed for a relatively um, free, it's often called you know the first free and fair election in Salvadoran history in, in 1931, that indeed put, did put this, you know, at least he was a, he was a very wealthy landowner, but, um, had spent some time in England and had become a fan of the Labour Party and, and actually ran, um, on the, uh, the, the created the Labour Party in El Salvador. This guy named Arturo Orajo. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and he won. And, and it seemed that, you know, he, he did have some intentions of, of overseeing some progressive reforms. He was only in office for eight months before the military took over. So. Just to say, like, that, that election in, in 1931 is, is really fascinating as you describe it because in addition to Araujo, who is, you know, he, he attempted a coup in 1920 is, 
I think a previous, his previous political, uh, moment. Um, and he's the head of the, uh, of this labor party. Another competitor in the, in the election is, uh, Molina, um, Thomas Molina, who is the, uh, he had been Quinones, he's a relative of Quinones who had challenged right. him in 1922 and right. whose supporters had actually been massacred by, <laughs> uh, the forces of the, of the national government. Um, uh, actually, the, yeah, the Liga Roja was, yeah. was supposedly one of the key instigators of that massacre in 22. And so it reinforces what, yeah, don't lose your train of thought there. But yeah, it reinforces what I was saying where you've got this Molina, this, this very, very close insider who, yeah, presents a challenge to the regime and, and the regime and was gaining ground in the military, and the, and the regime turns around and uses this paramilitary force and yeah, crushes it. So, but anyway, go ahead. What and, are you gonna? And so now he, he, and like the, these figures are being allowed, um, and they're they're actively participating in a real electoral challenge for the first time. This is this is just like such a striking moment that this is happening here. You know, not even a decade after those previous events had been going on. So. Yeah, and, and it's pretty interesting to watch how, uh, how, you know, Romero Bosque, again, his motivation behind this, I, I wasn't able to really understand, frankly, you know, based on what I had. But, but what he did is, is fairly evident, you know, and he was very effective at, at allying himself with the military, at not alienating them, um, and, um, using the, the powers that he and some ministers around him had to sort of really try to not rewrite the rules he was operating within the existing formal rules, which look very democratic, but kind of give new meaning to this, the informal practices. And, excuse me. And, and being able to watch that unfold, you know, in the documentation sort of day to day, month to month, year to year during his, re- during his uh, presidency. Yeah, it was quite fascinating. And then to end up in this, you know, relatively open election in, in 1931. It was a, it was a very interesting thing to watch. So, uh, Talk about what happens to Araujo in 1931 and uh, the guy who replaces him, Martinez. Well, yeah, this is, you know, the kind of uh, iconic moment in in the the sort of sad story of authoritarianism in, in El Salvador. But as, as you know, many people know, um, in December of 31, uh, you know, there's there's a military coup. This, this thing is different than all the other coups. There have been lots of officers in power, but it had kind of happened at the... At, at the kind of it was the sort of spear point you might say of these kind of rival patronage networks, but right. it's different. The, the, now the military is kind of a you know a sort of formalized institution of the state, and you know and these these officers, I mean I'm sure of course we don't know exactly yet you know made some alliances with powerful private sector actors and stuff like this. You know, it's not really clear how that happened, but. Um, but yeah, they, they, they basically roll in over the issue of, of military pay and, and the, the kind of grinding, you know, you know, um, incapacities of the Araujo regime in the middle of the Great Depression and, and, um, and yeah, take over power. And, and eventually then the vice president at the time, this guy, um, Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, right, eventually sort of gets his way, um, into power there. And, you know, as I try to show, there's, there's, I certainly argue that there's this consistent culture and practice of authoritarianism that could have predicted five years of uninterrupted military rule. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that particular moment, there, there's not anything to say that, you know, Hernandez Martinez was going to make it. <laughs> he was in a you know terrible state of affairs. Right. 
the U.S. was opposing him. The economy was in crisis. Um, he had no political base. Uh, there's there's all kinds of reasons why he should ultimately have failed. Um, but it seems to me that you know the episode of 1932, the rise of the peasantry, and the, the crackdown that went with it, you know, went a long ways towards consolidating his power, and then his ability to then, uh, you might say, implant himself upon this long-standing system of centralized patronage and clientelism. Um, so he just was able to essentially not so much appropriate, but integrate himself into this. Right. Um, helps to explain first his longevity and then ultimately the, the continuation of military rule thereafter. So um, in 1932, uh, there is this peasant uprising, um, which is brutally repressed by the government. And you make a particular sort of uh, argument about the origins of that uprising, which has often been uh, the Communist Party in El Salvador at the time does play a role in what's going on. But you make a, an argument about its role and about how that's been understood. So I guess, uh, could you uh, just explain a little, little bit about what happens during this uprising and what you think is actually distinctive about it that differs in a bit from from what other people have have argued about the about the uprising <clears throat> sure um so the, the the uprising itself involves about a dozen communities out in western el salvador and most of the communities that are involved here um are are disproportionately indigenous like maui salco 90 percent indigenous um Right. East Alco, Waiua, Takuba, um, and a couple of the other larger departmental capitals, Sonsonate and Awachatan, are also involved or attacked. And so, on the one hand, the uprising is is just a, a, a rising up of folks, these folks, whoever they are and were, um, and they occupy the the municipalities. They they attempt to occupy Awachatan and Sonsonate, the two larger departmental capitals, but the, their their attempts to attack the the garrison or the forts, the quartels there, they're, they're repulsed and, and pushed back from those particular areas. But they, they do manage to, to take control of about a half a dozen um, smaller but nonetheless important regional municipalities out there. And they hold on to them for the longest is about three days. And there's some there's claims, and it se- seems to be somewhat accurate, that out in at least one of these, out in Takuba in the far west, they may have actually even sort of created momentarily a Soviet, uh, hmm. um, which would kind of seem to promote that, that um, the communist causality approach, uh, interpretation of this. But anyway, and so they, they rise up, and we, we don't, to be honest, you know, we don't know a whole lot about exactly who these folks were, um, how this thing was, was organized. What exactly they were after? I mean, many of these most important questions um, remain highly elusive to us. And frankly, at this point in the game, I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, I think that the closest chance we really had, given the documentation's inability to provide these answers, is when Jeff Gould, <clears throat> who's a professor at Indiana, a very you know well-known and senior right. professor at Indiana, and Aldo Laudia, <clears throat> who I mentioned previously. You know, teamed up and, and as part of a broader project in Central America, went out and, and conducted, you know, interviews with with older folks and their family members, but in particular the older folks, 
you know, and we're looking for people who could speak to what was this, you know, were you involved, and what 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 was the cause of this, and how was this mobilized and organized, you know, and they 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 came up with a, a wonderful book and and some uh, some important contributions around there, but ultimately, you know, even they, after you know a couple hundred interviews, you know, had to accept that they they weren't able to really find anybody who could say, yes, I was a, a militant in this uprising. This is what. You know, I did it for this is how we organized and mobilized it. So these questions are, are largely lost to us, unfortunately, I think at this point. But that being said, you know, what, um, sorry, and then maybe I'll, I'll just backtrack for a moment. So the, these individuals, these folks who rose up and, and gained control of these roughly six municipalities and atta- attacked approximately a dozen. Um, they kind of caught the army, the military off guard and sort of had it on its heels waiting. That's why they're able to hold these cities for, for two or three days. But then the military managed to regroup. And this isn't the national military coming in from San Salvador yet. This is the local garrison. Right. Um, they, they regroup and, and they had overwhelming firepower and overwhelming speed. And, and in a relatively short time, you know, once they started going, mobilizing within the span of about a day or so, you know, they had essentially kicked or kicked out the the rebels, the insurgents from from each of these municipalities, and so at that point the rebellion is over. So two or three days. It's after that that the national government sends in all the reinforcements from the center and east of the country, and it's that arrival of this mass um, military force in conjunction with really angry local locals who create paramilitary forces along with it right. that over the next 10 days to two weeks the the, the killing takes place and th- we we have some pretty good insights into this not nearly as much as, as we need to really understand it better but we have some pretty you know compelling uh, dramatic stories of of the massacre that occurred thereafter and you know and it went on for about you know again not not very long in the big history of things 10 days to two weeks but you know thousands and thousands of people died in that process um and so yeah and so uh, coming out of that then uh, there's a variety of kind of arguments that, that i advanced but just to get to the one that that you're most focused on which which now has been kind of a, a debate that's been going on for you know it's now 16 17 years that we've we Salvador and it's kind of negotiating this, but, but in short, the, 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 the kind of received wisdom when I came into it here was that, that the Communist Party and famed figures like Fadabundo Marti, um, were the principal actors or agents behind this uprising in 1932. Um, and there's a, you know, wonderful book by Thomas Anderson back from the early 70s, you know, called Matanza. And I think his subtitle at the time was the, Communist Rebellion of 1932, or or something along those lines, and so mm-hmm. and then there are a variety of other works that that essentially kind of advance this argument. And the National Archives on this, frankly, in El Salvador, they don't have a whole lot to offer on this. I mean, they certainly have some interesting pieces, but it really wasn't until I, you know, I went to Moscow and really got my hands on those materials there that that. I began to advance what, what I would consider to be kind of a revisionist argument against this. And, and without going into it in too much detail, but, you know, this involves a correspondence between, not really with Moscow so much, but with the Caribbean Bureau in New York, but also with the Comintern in Moscow uh, and the local actors in El Salvador. Uh, 
not a whole lot with Sarabundo Marti, but some. But with the head of the Communist Party, the head of the International Red Aid, um, the head of the local labor union there, the um, FRTS. And, you know, so some really fascinating insights into what they're concerning themselves with, what their numbers are, what they're able to do and what are involved in. And in short, my interpretation of that was it just seemed really impossible for the Communist Party, which in February or January of 1932 was, was not even two years old and, you know, at its maximum maybe had 500 members, a lot of whom seemed to me to be essentially located and rooted in the capital city of San Salvador. Right. To have had time or opportunity to have mobilized, you know, a movement of this scale that it is largely responsible for directing and guiding. And so it seemed to me that it, that the documentation indicates that we need to push back against that, that paradigm that, you know, we had up until that point about the role of the Communist Party and even the formalized left and look deeper even though we can't actually because the sources don't allow us to, but, but that we have to put the impetus for this back into the communities and back into um, the masses, uh, largely indigenous masses, and whatever organizational structures that, that you know, they have. Um, and I tie that briefly back into the, the political realm because there, there certainly seems that there was that there was a link between the rising success of Ladino, now relatively elite coffee growers who were taking political power away from these indigenous communities that for a long time had been competitive and active in uh, local politics, um, and they were losing out at um, roughly the same time that these pressures were, were coming down, coming into 1932. And there's some very, a couple of very interesting documents that have local political indigenous actors, you know, writing to the departmental governor saying in so many words, um, you know, these Ladinos are stealing this election, you know, as they have before. And if you don't do something about this and come up here and, and help us in this process, you know, we something bad is going to happen very, very quickly, that this mm-hmm. is spinning out of control. And then the next thing you know, it, it, you know, the, the rebellion is taking place. And so that somehow that relationship between longstanding conflict or competition in the political, local political arena and this uprising, you know, at least somehow seems to be linked, which again would reinforce my slightly revisionist claim that I think we, you know, need to look back deeper into the local organizational structures for an explanation of this. Right. So again, unfortunately, I think that the sources really, we run into some, some brick walls there, some holes, you might say, but at least historiographically, that's the kind of debate we're involved in a little bit and, and, um, and, uh, in terms of understanding this this uh, potentially momentous event, but I think all of us who who work on this and write on this, I think we all understand that re- regard, sort of regardless of who was behind it, you might say, who's the principal actor. What what this certainly reveals to us is that you know these these mass actors, um, you know, were present and involved and articulating what politics and what you know, this nation state meant to them and 
that they were, you know, involved in, in it and, and that people had to, um, uh, engage them in address right. it at that level. And so I think that has long-term uh, repercussions for the authoritarian system in El Salvador. Right. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, what happens in the, the immediate aftermath, I guess, of, of the Martinez government specifically? How does that pass on to the continuation of military governance? Um, if you could just yeah, talk well, very briefly about that. Sure, yeah, very quickly. I think that then one of the things that I think that this is where I've offered some of the more, um, well-documented revisionist arguments uh, about um, El Salvador and about the Martinez regime, but very briefly, you know, it's very clear that in the the immediate aftermath of the massacre, you have this Martinez regime completely stepping back from that. You know, he pulled the troops out of the West. He put an end true, to the yeah. slaughter, um, and he began very quickly to be talking about you know the state's responsibility to help the poor against the rapacious rich landowners and land elite. I mean, he really began to sort of, um, well, I shouldn't say he really began, but he began to introduce the idea that the state is a reformist element that has an obligation to look out for its poorest citizenry. And, of course, this is just a tremendously traumatic paradox, um, given what the state just did to these folks, particularly out in the West. But I think that what, the argument that you, you know you kind of have to come to is that it was a very clear realization that um, the state was going to have to to introduce you know along with this language of democracy and and um, individual rights that it had had for for decades it was going to have to introduce the notion of of social and economic reform as a as a part of that and then what happens from that point forward is it's just a kind of constant evolution of debate inside these successive military regimes as to how much reform is going to be involved, how that's going to be presented, how those people who would be opposed to this, primarily you know, very wealthy economic elites, right. are going to react to it and how we can manage and balance that relationship. And so in the case of Martinez, one of the things that he really did do or tried to fight was he tried to fight the um, the coffee plantations from paying their workers in um, coupons instead of actual currency, and then having stores on the plantation that is the only place where those coupons could be um, used to buy goods. And so he was trying to to end that system, and he ultimately failed. But what the documentation shows is that you know he he actually his regime actually went you know into um, you know, fought the landowners on this. And also the documentation is pretty explicit that when, you know, indigenous peoples and indigenous communities came to him and came to the state asking for help relative to local elites and local Ladinos who they believed were, you know, repressing them and, and so forth, that, that he and his local military, you know, players out of the, out of the um, departments, you know, came to their aid and sided with them. So, you know, it's it's ironic. It's tremendously ironic, tremendously paradoxical. And maybe people that also study authoritarian systems, you know, recognize this as being, you know, maybe typical of it. But at least in the context of El Salvador, it sort of, you know, gives us a much more complex understanding of the Martinez regime. And then, to the extent that he seemed to set the standard for how military rule is going to take place after that, you know, not to be teleological about it, but 
it certainly seems to be consistently represented in the regimes that that came after him. Right. And so one of the advantages I have in coming back and then publishing this this study now in in 2013 that, you know, was at least the initial draft was done 16 years earlier, is that in the interim, I've had the chance, you know, working with Hector Vindel and others to do some other scholarship on El Salvador after 1940. Hmm. So that's largely what took me so long to get back to this. And so, but it was advantageous for me because I was able to, excuse me, see the, see, you know, to, to understand better what happened after Martinez and then to sort of draw out these legacies then in the epilogue and the conclusion to this. Right. Well, um, I think we're just about out of time. Um, our classic last question for the New Books Network is, what are you working on next? Yeah, well, um, I am just in the process of, of signing an advanced contract for a project that I was actually working on when when um, Scott Manwaring of uh, Scott Manwaring of, of Notre Dame came to me and asked me if I if I had any plans for this yet and if I'd consider it for UNC and then I stopped this other project and then con- kind of finished the revisions on this one. But the other project that um, I'm working on now and and hopefully we'll have the final draft done in spring is is tentatively titled "Remembering the Civil War in El Salvador." Uh, memoir, testimony, and the narrative battle. And, and what I'm looking at is, uh, memoirs and testimony, testimonies that have been produced in El Salvador since 1992 that focus on, um, the Civil War and the memories of the Civil War. And so I'm trying to analyze, um, through that particular source base how Salvadorans are remembering, um, collectively remembering the Civil War and if there are any patterns uh, that emerge out of those types of sources. And so what I'm working on is the revisions of that um, that, that manuscript. Well, good luck, and I'll look forward to well, seeing thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thanks very much. Thank you.